Hi, this is Timothy Pig, and I want to welcome you to Text Driven Podcast, a podcast put out by the Ministry of Fellowship Church in Southwest Florida. Text Driven Podcast exists to equip you to know God and make Him known through text driven preaching and practice. To learn more about Fellowship Church, visit our website, fellowshipchurch.co. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Texture and Podcast, where we are providing you with resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. Hopefully, uh, you find these episodes to be encouraging to you. If this is your first time listening, uh, we want to say thank you for being a part of the Texture and Podcast and giving us a listen today. If uh, these episodes are encouraging to you, I encourage you to like uh, this podcast as well as share it on your social media platforms. And let's try to get the message of the Lord Jesus out to as many believers as possible because God is pleased when we live a life that is honoring unto him. And we do that through living a text-driven life. In today's episode, we're continuing our series of uh, reviewing a new book put out by Eric Metaxas entitled Letter to the American Church. In this book, uh, Metaxas is comparing the uh, apathy and the silence of the German church in the 1930s during the rise of Adolf Hitler to the American church today. And it's really a book that is a call to action for Christians to be involved in the culture. We are not to be overcome by the culture. We are not to be like the culture, but instead we should be engaging the culture and sharing about biblical truth and how uh, the Bible requires us to live. In this episode, we're gonna look at chapters eight, nine, and 10. Now chapter eight is the uh, conclusion to really the first part of the book itself. Chapter 9 begins his second argument that we'll get into in just a little bit. And chapter 10 is kind of a subset of this second part of his argument. So chapter 8 begins with closing out the misunderstanding that the current church today, as well as the church during the 1930s in Germany had concerning faith. And chapter 8 is entitled, The Church Paralyzed. He begins by quoting James chapter 2, verse 24, that says, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In this chapter, one of the things that Bonhoeffer, uh, that Metaxas is describing about Bonhoeffer is how he majored on the fact that a genuine faith is a faith that is in action. You know, one of the things that we need to wrestle with as believers is the role of faith and works. You know, the scripture teaches that we are not saved by works, but instead we're saved by grace that comes uh, through faith. However, works are a critical part of the Christian's life. It's a critical part of your life and my life. Uh, you remember in the book of James where it says that faith without works is dead. Well, if that's true, then that would mean that what should accompany our faith are actions, how we live what we do. 
it is essential that we are a faith people that work. Now, Metaxas describes this on page 68 by talking about how the term faith and believe are terms that have been misunderstood, but instead they need to be defined in the language of trust. Listen to what he says on page 68. Living out our Christian faith is less an issue of what we believe than an issue of in whom we trust. See, the term trust has an active idea to it. It it means that you must put what you believe into action and that that belief in action is actually what is meant in the Bible by faith. Let's utilize scripture as an example of this. If you have a Bible, think with me about the, the chapter in scripture that we so often call the Hall of Faith chapter. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. And in the book of Hebrews, the author goes through the Old Testament talking about people who had faith. Begins in Hebrews 11, verse 4, saying that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, the Bible says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. Now, just in verse 4 and verse 8 of Hebrews 11, we see that the term faith is immediately accompanied by an action. With Abel, it says it was by faith that Abel, here's the action, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. In verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says by faith Abraham, and here's the action, obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. So in each of these uh, heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you find that they were people who did something, who trusted in what God had said and acted upon it. That is what faith is all about. And he goes on and he says, Metaxas says this at the bottom of page 68. We need to engage with everything in us. What he's saying is that as Christians who claim to have faith, we must thrust our life fully in that faith. And thrusting our life fully in that faith is going to be about doing works. He goes on to quote what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 as support for this idea of a faith in action. Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And as you know, Jesus responded and said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Notice the totality of 
the love that is needed. That if you're going to have faith in God, if you're going to believe in God, that means you're going to love. There's your action. And that love is going to be all-encompassing with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind. So what would that mean for you and for me? It means that faith must permeate in all aspects of our life. Metaxas puts it this way on page 70. He says, God asks of us this, will you trust me with your income? Remember, he utilizes that word trust as the action of faith. Will you trust me with your income? Will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me with your spouse's life or your child's life? You see the question. The question that God is asking of you and me, those who claim to be people of faith, is are we going to thrust our entire life, are we going to put all of us before God to be used? Are we going to engage? I like what Metaxas says on page 70 in that final full paragraph. He says, people see precisely what we believe by how we behave. How you act is a testimony to where your faith is. So I want to ask you, before we get into the next two chapters, is your faith validated or invalidated by your actions? Is the way that you are living your life, the works that you're doing, are they demonstrating that you are a person of faith? And then that faith is a faith in God. Well, I can tell you this, a person who has their faith in God will be about certain actions, and those actions are going to cause them to be courageous in the current world that we live in. Now, let's talk about the shift that happens in Metaxas's book to the second error that is in the American church that Metaxas sees as being a parallel with the problems of the German church in the 1930s. He calls in chapter 9 the title, The Idol of Evangelism. Now let me give you a 30,000 foot view of what the idol of evangelism is, because just that title itself is provocative. When you think about evangelism, you think, how in the world could that be idolatrous? Idolatrous is having an idol is putting something above God, and how can you put evangelism above God when evangelism is sharing about the good news of God that comes from Christ Jesus. Well, what Metaxas is doing in chapter 9 is he's saying this. The church in America has become so enamored with evangelism, or quite frankly, consumerism, with building a crowd, that it has in the face of wrong silenced its witness so as not to hinder 
her evangelism. Let me put this in kind of uh, uh, applicable terms. Let's say you have a next door neighbor and that next door neighbor is somebody you want to be friends with, somebody that you enjoy hanging out with. And you know that God has called you to share the gospel with your neighbor, that you're called to love your neighbor. And that part of loving your neighbor is uh, making known to your neighbor their need for Christ. But then you also discover that there are some things that your neighbor holds to, that if you pointed out those flaws, you pointed out those behaviors, that you might ruin the witness that you're trying to build with them. So what you do is you decide not to share about their sin because you don't want to ruin that friendship, because if you ruin that friendship, you'll not be able to share the gospel with them. So what you've decided to do is only talk to them about God in a way that allows for them to ascend to the intellectual understanding that, yes, I need God, but it's not a need for God because of their sinfulness. It's really a need for God because God can do more for them than they can do by themselves. Essentially, what you've done is you've neutered the gospel. You see, the gospel has to include bad news that man is a sinner before they can understand just how good the good news is that there's forgiveness by faith in Christ Jesus. I think this is the reason why uh, the book of Romans opens the way that it does. Uh, currently, uh, Dr. Stephen Smith, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church and has been preaching through the book of Romans, and I've been reading through, uh, listening to his sermon series, and he, he points this out, that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, and I encourage you to go uh, study those three chapters, you will find the judgment of God so bluntly given. Romans chapter 1, speaking about God's judgment and the debased mind of humanity. Uh, Romans chapter 2, speaking of the hypocrisy of uh, church folk. Uh, Romans chapter 3 at the very beginning showing how both uh, Gentiles and Jews, if they are without God, are, are sinners in the judgment of God. So the whole opening three chapters of the book of Romans is all about judgment. Why is that? Because what the Apostle Paul is saying, and Dr. Smith brings this out in his sermon series, but what the Apostle Paul is trying to get the Roman church to see is the brilliant light of the gospel against the backdrop of the dark filth of sin. You see, the radiance of the gospel shines so much brighter when we recognize just how vile and sinful we truly are apart from God. And we can run the risk of making evangelism an idol when we fail to talk about sin because we do not want to offend someone because we don't want that to hinder our gospel conversation that might later come. Listen to what Metaxas says on page 76. 
For one thing, it may well cause us never to say anything that might offend someone because we fear that that offense on some infinitely less important issue than eternal salvation might drive that person from assenting to the only thing that matters, which is saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what, what could be an infinitely less important issue than eternal salvation? Well, you might be thinking, for instance, uh, gender identity. Why stand up and speak sanity such as that gender is assigned by God and that assignment can either be male or female and man does not have the right to to change if man wants to be it, man wants to be a female he doesn't have the right to do that because God has assigned gender at conception so if that's the uh, if that's a truth you might say well that that's unimportant compared to where a person spends eternity so if I'm talking to somebody I'm not gonna share with them that their lifestyle is sinful because it might hinder my evangelism. If that's your type of thinking, that's a poor way to think. That's a foolish way to think. Why? Because you've removed the bad news from the gospel. You've actually, by not dealing with these issues, communicated to that person, they don't need Christ because there's nothing wrong with them. When in reality, we all need Christ because we all are messed up people, sinners and unrighteous. And we all desperately need the good news that Jesus changes us. So this is what uh, Metaxas is dealing with in chapter number nine. As he moves ahead to chapter 10, a very interesting thing happens. He, he starts talking about truth and love. Now, in our current understanding, truth and love are separate concepts. We think about truth as um, statements of fact, and then we talk about love. However, when we look at how the Bible teaches who God is, we are told that God is truth. Jesus said it in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. And we're also told in 1 John that God is love. So to see God is not only to see love, but it is also simultaneously to see truth. So you cannot divide those concepts out. That in order to speak truth, you must also speak love. In order to speak love, you also have to speak truth. This is what Metaxas gets at on page 89. Now I'm going to read kind of a lengthy section and talk about it. But let's look at this. On page 89, in the second full paragraph, he says this, to declare any truth in a way that steps away from God's love is to speak no truth at all as well as to step away from the one who is truth. But to claim that we are being loving when we step away from the truth of God is not to love at all, but only to fool ourselves into thinking that we are being loving. It is also to step away from the one who is love. And when we love in this fallen human way, we are not blessing those we are claiming to be loving, but are in fact cursing them and damning them. There's no way around it. 
So not to speak an uncomfortable truth to someone who needs to hear it and giving the excuse that we are loving them is not to love them, but instead to harm them. Listen to this paragraph. So we see there are two ways in which someone can err. One is to speak so much truth with so little love that he is actually speaking. He is not actually speaking truth. We have seen and heard such persons so obsessed with truth that whether they are actually communicating successfully seems immaterial to them. And actually, that's quite the case. They are obviously more concerned with justifying themselves with proving that they are uncompromising purveyors of truth than with actually purveying truth. They seem to believe that they are earning points with whatever God they are serving by such behavior. They are not at all worried about pushing others away with what they are saying. Perhaps they even delight in the idea. But if one is actually communicating or wanting to communicate, one is naturally not insensitive to whether what one is saying is actually getting across to the person or people with whom one is speaking. That lies at the heart of what it means to speak and communicate. The opposite of this is an equal problem. To show so much love that you are misrepresenting the real love of God and are forsaking God's truth in the process. You are so afraid of saying something that might push away the one to whom you are speaking that you cease to say anything at all controversial or potentially disagreeable. You see, you cannot, if you're going to speak in a way that God would have us to speak, you cannot speak truth without love, and you cannot love without speaking truth. And the one thing that we need as a church today is to be a group of people who are willing to speak truth, but to do so in a loving manner. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to speak truth that the person is wrong, needs to change. The person who is claiming to be full of justice is actually practicing injustice. The person who's claiming to be all about love is, is actually has a wrong definition of love. A person who claims to be caring is actually being uncaring. No. Sometimes we have to speak that out. Let me give some examples. For instance, the pro-abortion advocates are claiming to care for the mother. And that through caring for the mother, they are being very loving. Well, let me share this with you. It is not caring for a mother to persuade her that committing murder of her child is a loving thing to do. It is not caring for the baby, the unborn child, to convince a mother that she's caring for herself while killing her baby. And you see, we have to speak that truth out and we must share that truth in love. For instance, it is not loving or truthful to elevate one group of people above another group of people in order to balance the scales of 
justice. No, instead, what's the most loving and truthful thing to do is to point all people to a righteous judge who is God, who will judge sin unless one repent and place their faith in the saving work of Christ. You see, we need to be a church who speaks the truth in love. So you might be thinking, well, I'll just remain silent. That's not the answer. No, you have to speak. We have to make disciples. We have to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So let me encourage you. Speak the truth in love. Do so in a text-driven way. Let the default position of your words be, what does God say? When you speak what God says, and you speak it in the way God tells you to speak it, you can be assured that you're going to be speaking the truth in love. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Text Driven Podcast. For more resources like this one, go to our website, www.fellowshipchurch.co. Also want to take a moment and invite you to our 2023 Great Commission Weekend, February 24th through the 26th at our Immokalee campus. You'll hear from great preachers such as Dr. David Allen, Dr. Jerry Vine, Dr. Scott Coulter, as well as good friends, Pastor Stoney Benfield and Pastor Mike Stone. We'll hear from President of Montana Christian College, Dr. Marvin Jones, and uh, President of Northeastern Baptist College, uh, Dr. Mark Ballard. It's going to be a great weekend. You can find out all the details on our website as well. Uh, And until next time, please know we're praying for you, and we're praying that you'll live a text-driven life. God bless.